asked Emily to uh, do that and uh, to come up and dismiss the kids, not because I think she can do that better, but um, she can, but her voice is just very soothing. I, I feel like my uh, elementary school principal is speaking to me and uh, making my six-year-old self feel like, oh, okay, I know what's happening next. So uh, I, I like that. It's good. So um, we're going to start today looking at Philippians uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the very beginning of uh, Paul's letter. We looked last week at the planting of that church in Philippi, and then today we're going to look at uh, the beginning of his uh, words to them. So um, in light of that, let me pray, and then I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that uh, you have spoken to us very clearly, directly, lovingly, graciously uh, in your word. Uh, and by your spirit, we pray today that you would take this word and that you would apply it to our hearts and lives, that you would give comfort, conviction, grace and mercy, uh, that you would uh, help us today to believe uh, uh, what you uh, say to us. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, the text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so it's, it's a worthwhile question for us to ask Luke. You can go ahead and put my, my notes up there. Uh, and that's this. What's the best way to communicate with people? Right. Uh, I, we people uh, make uh, millions and millions of dollars speculating about how the best way to communicate is like uh, one of the trends I see in communication that I don't know what to make of is, is that we're getting away from words to communicate and and more to images to communicate. And sometimes I really like that. You know, I like really dumb memes and, and stuff like that. They do kind of communicate or emojis, you know, uh, they, they do communicate certain things. Uh, but it does kind of remind me, you know, that isn't that the way the Egyptians communicated, right? When you look on those walls and the, in the pier, in the pyramids, there are lots of pictures like guys and, you know, snakes and guys in uh, chariots and that sort of thing. So how do you, how do you communicate? Well, in, in the ancient uh, world, uh, communication is very difficult, right? You don't, you don't text, you don't have email, you don't, you don't really have mail, at least in the way in which we tend to think about this. And so you wrote letters. And this letter begins like almost any letter that would have been written in the ancient near, uh, in the ancient world in the first century. It's, it's very typical. Uh, and this letter was written, uh, by, uh, Paul the Apostle to the church that he had planted in Philippi about 10 years after he had, he had planted it. He is going to send this letter with Timothy. Timothy's going to hand deliver it so that when the people gather there in worship, what they will do is uh, uh, they'll say on a Sunday morning, hey, we have this letter from Paul the Apostle, our friend, pastor, church planter, missionary, and uh, uh, we're going to read it uh, and we're going to talk about it. And so this letter was, is, was written to the church 
by the person who planted the church. And he is going to speak very directly to their issues and to their concerns. And, and there's a lot of great things in this letter. He is actually going to call people out about things in this letter. He's going to name two women who are in a uh, conflict with one another. He's going to say in front of everybody, hey, you know, you, you Odia and Seneca, you guys need to straighten it out. Okay. It's a, a, a very uh, pastoral, very loving, very kind uh, a, a, a word that he is going to bring to them. And so uh, as we look at this today, you, you, you need to understand that this, there's nothing about uh, the beginning of this letter anyway that would have seemed out of line. In the ancient world, uh, rather than saying, dear church at Philippi, you put your name, your name first. Hey, this is, this is uh, Paul the apostle with Timothy. We're the ones who are sending you this letter. And then he would say to, to whom he is sending the letter. And it would be, it would have been very common even for, uh, uh, people who are not Christians to use words like grace to you. Um, they didn't understand what that meant fully in the way that Christians did, but it would not have been uh, uncommon at all. And so what I want us to do this morning is to, to unpack this because there are some things in this initial greeting <clears throat> that are pretty profound, pretty powerful things for us and, and very challenging things uh, uh, um, uh, as well. Now, the first thing that jumps out at me is he gives his name, Paul and Timothy, and he says they are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, we in this church make a big deal out of the fact that we are adopted children of God. We're adopted sons with all the full rights of a full inheritance. And that is clearly the gospel, that that, that, a part of the gospel. And it is one that Paul himself developed. Remember, in, in Romans 8, Paul's very clear about uh, our adoption into the into the family of God. And he even says here, grace and peace to you from God, our father. So what are you? Are you a, a son, a daughter, or are you a servant? A slave, really, that's the word here that uh, that he that that he uses. Um, it's interesting. Most of the time, many times Paul will begin his, uh, uh, his letters uh, with his uh, identification as an apostle uh, to because he needs to speak to people about his unique authority. Uh, but he also often will, will call himself a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we, as we hear that, it's important for us to unpack a little bit about that because, uh, next slide please, Luke. There's no, uh, we might hear the word slave, we might hear the word servant, and we have, we have a very negative connotation to that. But the fact is, the way Paul looks at this and the way the New Testament views it is, is important for us. Because here this man is, he's in prison, uh, likely facing uh, a very difficult road of, uh, ahead. And he is writing this letter to this church in Philippi, identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, right? It's a very bold thing that he's doing. It's important for us when we think, when we react to being called slaves or being called, uh, being called servants, is that our lives are like a speck of dust, small speck of dust, in comparison to the eternal God, and we cannot be the true heroes of the world. Now, I know that the, some of you are going to be very disappointed in that. that uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm at least the hero in my story, right? Right? Uh, but we cannot be the true heroes of the world. But we can live lives of service, 
loving God and neighbor in a way that does not allow fear of death or fear of anything else for that matter to master us. And I think that is a profound thing that Paul, Paul's very bold in calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ without, in, in a situation where identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ could cost him his very life. Now, as, as we think about this, if somebody were to call you a slave or to call you a servant, you might, you, you might take offense at that, right? Next slide. Um, but one of the things that we have to see about this is, is that the Bible doesn't see that as a negative at all. I remember years ago, uh, uh, many years ago, being with my dad when he was going in for surgery and we were out, my brother and I and his pastor were outside the uh, operating room with him before he went in to, uh, to have surgery. And, and my dad's pastor, uh, he's, he was a Presbyterian pastor, but he was British. He had grown up in the Church of England. And so when he came to pray for sick people, he always brought his book of common prayer with him and would read prayers from that. And I remember standing out there, out there in the hallway, and he got ready to pray over my dad. And he said, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, graciously comfort your servant, Milton, my dad's name, in his suffering. And I, and I remember thinking about that at the time, thinking, you know, on the one hand, like, why didn't he call him your son? But there was something about identifying my dad in that moment as the servant of the living God that actually encouraged me, that uh, caused me to think, you know, he's right about that. That's, that's what Jesus has done for him in the gospel. And so this issue of, of, of being called a servant is, is in, at least in the Christian economy, is one of the richest, most profound things we can call someone. And after all, Paul's going to go on in a few uh, verses here in chapter 2 to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ as taking on the form of a servant, a slave. So if Jesus, the very Son of God, who's called Lord here, came to us in the form of a slave, in the form of a servant, uh, then there's, there's, there's more going on here than, than we probably uh, uh, think. And, and not only that, Paul knows that Moses and most of the prophets were called servants of the living God, right? So one of the things that's profound about that is for us to see and to, to understand the richness that, that comes with that. Because you see, the world, the worldview of the New Testament is not like our worldview. The worldview of the, uh, of the New Testament takes the population of the world and splits it in two. And so either you serve the world, the flesh, and the devil, or you serve Jesus. That's it. There are, there, 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 there isn't, there isn't anything else. Now that, that seems so harsh to us, right? Because there are people we know and love, people I know and love, who are nice people, they're, they're fun people, they're enjoyable people, but the way the New Testament looks at that, until we come to faith in Christ, until we recognize our need and, and see the work that Jesus has done in living, dying, and rising again for us, the fact of the matter is we are enslaved, we are in bondage to sin and death. 
It may feel like freedom. It may feel like I can do whatever I want to do. I am unaccountable to anyone but myself. But the reality is what, what the scripture says is that until we are, uh, find true freedom as the servants of the living God, as servants of Jesus Christ through what he has done for us, we are in bondage and a bondage that always ends in death, always ends in death, always ends in a, in a terrible situation. But true freedom Real freedom to be what we were created to be, to be who we were created to be, to be who we were redeemed to be is found only in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, he is saying something profound about himself, something profound about the work of God in him, something profound about his identity and who it is he belongs to. You are not your own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, your faithful Savior. Right. And that's where real freedom, real joy, real delight, real delight and where real uh, uh, freedom from fear uh, is, is found. So it's a it's a it's a great thing if somebody comes to you and says, you're you know, you're a servant, because in some ways, when you are serving, you look more like Jesus. Than you do any other time. Right. Next slide. Secondly, he, he, he writes this letter to the overseers and deacons of the church. Now, it's interesting, the elders and deacons there, he doesn't uh, really anywhere else in the letter directly address them. I think he mentions them here at the beginning because, as we'll see, the occasion of this letter is to thank the church at Philippi, at Philippi because they've taken up an offering, they've uh, gathered some money together, and they've delivered it to him there to help him in his needs while he is in prison. Uh, and and I would guess that the overseers and the deacons, particularly the deacons, probably are the ones who organized this, who took up this offering, who who organized for its delivery. Right. And so he he wants them to know right off the bat that he is thanking them. Secondly, he also speaks to the saints. Right. All the saints. Now, we hear the word saint, and we tend to think of statues and medallions around people's necks, right? Right? Saints are, you know, the names of schools in Richmond, right? We, 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 we think of it that way. I remember years ago, uh, uh, some folks who came to the church who had uh, their background, and uh, before they came to our church, they, uh, they were uh, attended, they were part of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and they came to uh, uh, our church and uh, joined. Uh, they brought one Sunday, uh, somebody's mom uh, came, who was uh, very staunchly Roman Catholic. And this is back when we were worshiping in the cathedral of the Cuyacuson Middle School gym. And uh, with all the ambience and the joy that, that that came with it, the bleachers and all of that. And they announced after church that they would never come again because uh, it was such a cold space. And what they meant by cold was there weren't any statues or icons in there. Well, there were, you know, the senator, because uh, that was they were the senators, right? Are they still they're They're not the senators anymore. They're the, the griffins. Yeah, that's right. So I'm sure there are griffins all over the place now, you know, icons of griffins. We weren't worshiping senators and we weren't worshiping, uh, we, I hope nobody's worshiping a griffin now, but, uh, the fact is, uh, 
saints in that uh, uh, part of the Christian communion views people who are super duper religious, super duper obedient, uh, who've done some pretty remarkable things. And as a result of that, they have stored up not just some extra righteousness that gets distributed to the rest of us. And our tradition, which I think is a, the Pauline tradition, everybody in the church, everybody who is joined to Jesus Christ, everyone who belongs to him is a saint because you've been set uniquely apart by the love of God. He has his hand on your life. You belong to him. You're a holy one. You're a holy one. Look around this room. You're surrounded by saints. That Jesus Christ looks at and delights in. That he welcomes. That are his people. That he is not ashamed or embarrassed to say, that one right there, they belong to me. That's my holy one. That's my saint. And so, so these people, the, the, the jailer, the, the Lydia, the seller of purple, and, and, the, and the woman who was freed from the demon and, and her slavery to telling the future, they're saints. You are too, if you're in Christ. And so to be a servant, to be a saint, to be centered in this way upon the work of Christ is, is such a rich and profound thing for uh, this, this group of people to, to hear this. And then he goes on to them and he's going to say grace to you and peace from from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I'm going to tell you is that this blessing that he he gives to them, grace and peace. Uh, you know, we just kind of roll those words just kind of roll off our tongues. Right. In fact, you know, you, you can always tell when you when you meet some people who will greet you by saying grace and peace. Right. I don't know. I always wonder when someone says that to me, if they really know what they're talking about or or they just thinking that's a religious thing to say. When Paul says grace here, he says to us, this is life. Life is found in no other but Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to you when you were rebelling against him and his enemy, when you were a slave in bondage and sin, and he gave his life for you when you were not interested. In fact, not only were you not interested, but you liked your slavery to sin and death. You preferred it until he came to you in grace and love and changed you. He died your death. He rose again for you. That's the remarkable thing about grace. You know, we, uh, when our kids were little, you know, we, we wanted them to know that we loved them. But it is the hardest thing in the world. I, I look back on this now and I really struggled with this with my, with my grandson is because I want them to know that I love them. But I'm sure that I've communicated to them that I love them because I think they're cute. Or I love them because I think they're so smart. Or I love them because they're so gifted or they're so, and all of those things are true. They are the smartest, most gifted kids ever. All right? Let's, let's stipulate that, right? But the fact is, what does that communicate? Daddy loves you because you're smart. The second, it seems like you might not be so smart. Maybe he won't love you. It's so hard, so hard because you don't want to, you know, they, they work hard. They come home with an A on their report card and you're like, ah, big deal. 
And then you don't want to say to him, I would have loved you if you made an F. It's true. But I would have been really, my love would have been demonstrated in a different way here, right? Right? (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, the, the rich thing that we have, the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of the grace of God is that he loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. And that's it. And the second we begin to think he loves me because of this, he loves me because of that, that I've done, that I've achieved, grace is meaningless to you. You've lost it. It slipped off your heart. But fortunately, the great thing about this grace of God is that it lays hold of us and it it changes us and it reorients us and it becomes the very foundation of life. And so when he says, I wish grace to you, I wish for, for us to know and to feel and to experience and to speak and to live and to die in the reality that our God loves us. Regardless of my circumstances, regardless of whether I am in chains for the gospel, regardless of whatever else may be true of me, that is always true. And that is the very foundation of my life. And you only get this grace from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, he goes on to say peace. And one of the things that you have to see about this, and one of the the very basic things that's true of that is reflected in this quotation at the beginning of the worship service from Martin Luther, grace remits sin and peace quiets the conscience. Sin and conscience torment us, but Christ has overcome these fiends now and forever. These two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. That's true. The way we tend to think about this, and I think there is truth to this, is that, that because uh, God in his grace has reconciled us to himself uh, and therefore reconciles us to one another, that's where we find peace. And there, that's true. That God loves us, so we ought to love one another. That's true. But the peace that's spoken of here from a Pharisee, from one who is schooled in the Old Testament, knows that peace means more than that sense of relaxation or that sense of togetherness. Peace in the Old Testament is that everything's been made right. Not just that I'm reconciled to God, certainly, but because I am reconciled to God, because the cross is having its full effect across the world, that means that the effects of sin and death in my life and in your life and in our church and in our relationships and in our, and in our nation and in the environment are wiped away once and for all. That the peace that Jesus lived and died to give us spreads the planet, that righteousness reigns, that grace reigns, and that all the effects of sin are done away with. Peace is wholeness, completeness, living out of and fully in the identity that we were created and redeemed to live. Now, if you were to say peace in the first century, it would everybody, regardless of, 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 uh, Gentile or Jew alike would have understood that that was a very political thing to say because this was during the period of time known as the Pax Romana, not Pax as in chicken pox, but Pax, P-A-X, as in peace of Rome. It was a peaceful time in the world. But it was peaceful because if you weren't peaceful, you were killed. That peace, the Pax Romana, came at the cost of the sword, right? But the peace that Jesus Christ brings about, the wholeness that he brings about, cost him his life. 
It is the restoration of the world as it should have been. And so when, when Paul says that peace only comes through Christ, that's a direct slap in the state, in the face of a, an oppressive Roman government. But he goes on even more to say something else, that this grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first century, in Philippi, if you were to be standing out in public and saying, Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord, you could be killed for that. When we hear those words, when we, when we see that, I think that's, that's a profound thing for us. And that's something that should, should challenge us and mark us off as completely different from anybody else, any other institution, any other politics, anything else than that. Only Jesus is Lord. And the hope of the world is that Jesus is Lord. And, and, and Paul goes even further in chapter 2 when he says, at the name of Jesus, this Lord, every knee will bow. Even Caesar's knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, because Jesus is Lord. We should not act and live like anyone else is Lord over us except Jesus Christ. In the Episcopal tradition, you pray every week for uh, the president, the governor, the mayor, the uh, that, and and and, uh, and they don't, you, in, if you were to go to an Anglican or Episcopal church, when when they say that prayer, they don't pray for President Trump. You know who they pray for? They pray for Donald. I <laughs> think that's awesome. They pray for Ralph. If we were in Richmond, we'd pray for LeVar. Because you know what? They're just guys. They're just dudes. They're just Donald. I <laughs> wonder what his mama called him, <laughs> right? Just like us. Only Jesus is Lord. That's the hope of the world. That's great news for us. And, and so, so as we, as we think about that and, and, and we unpack that, this one that we are joined to, that we are bond servants to, is the Lord. To whom every single knee will bow, either willingly or unwillingly, on that day. And so the great joy for us today is to be identified with that one who, whose gifts to us are not bondage, whose gifts to us are not taxes, who, whose gifts to us are not a peace that comes at the cost of our very freedom, but whose gifts to us are love and provision and remission of sin and forgiveness and grace and power and freedom. Paul wants us, he wants the church at Philippi to live fully out of the identity that Jesus Christ lived and died to give them. You're free as a servant of Jesus Christ. You're loved by your father. 
you have grace and you have peace in the sense that Jesus is putting you back together and uses little churches like us to put the world back together. These people in Philippi, this man who wrote this to the watching world in 60, 70 AD, they would have hardly noticed them. And yet the Lord, the King of glory, had his eyes and his heart on these people. And we're here today because of that. I hope that encourages, I hope that encourages your heart today. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we need a sense of this. I pray that you would forgive us for uh, thinking that uh, your heart, your uh, uh, hope is in other things. Forgive us for making uh, someone or something other than you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Set us free. Help us to live fully in the freedom uh, that you uh, served us to give us. Help us today, we pray, to uh, uh, enjoy fully the lavish grace that you give us in your love. And I pray that you would uh, give us a sense of the full freedom and the full rights we have as your people. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins together by using this confession of sin up on the screens behind me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you, unworthy of your grace. We have forfeited your love and peace. We are restless sinners. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Too often have we chosen the fruit over the garden. Too often have we bowed down to the golden calf. Too often have we begged for a sign. Too often have we declared Caesar to be Lord. Too often have we demanded to see the wounds in your hands. Too often have we substituted our image of you for you. Too often have we neglected your call to be salt and light. Too often have we reduced Christianity to a moral code. Too often have we forgotten Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Too often have we acted on sight and not on faith. Lord, have mercy upon us. Grant us your peace. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.